0: This is Jennifer Gonzalez welcoming you to episode 142 of the Cult of Pedagogy podcast. In this episode, I will be sharing a gently curated collection of resources on distance learning. Well, here we are. If you're listening to this in the distant future, I'll fill you in. I'm recording this in March of 2020. We are watching the COVID-19 virus spread all over the world and scrambling to find ways to slow it down. Schools are closed everywhere. We're being told to stay home as much as possible. Everything is canceled. Absolutely nothing feels normal right now. It's scary. And one of the hardest things about it, for me personally anyway, is not knowing when it's going to be over. I had all kinds of topics planned for future podcasts but now some of them seem irrelevant while others just don't address the main thing on the minds of so many teachers which is how are we supposed to continue teaching our students under these conditions. I knew I needed to shift my focus to something that would address distance learning but every time I tried to put something together I got so overwhelmed by all the stuff out there. Everyone has resources to share. Everyone has tips and advice. Every tech company is offering some kind of massive discount or free plan for teachers. And just as pressing, everyone has questions. What about primary grades? What about RTI? What about social emotional learning? What if my school isn't letting me teach my regular curriculum? And the biggest question of all what about families without tech? I didn't have any clear answers to any of those questions. (laughs) But what I do have is access to thousands of teachers, each of whom probably has at least one good idea. So I turned all of these questions back to you. I asked a crap ton of questions on Twitter and Facebook, and for each one, I got hundreds of responses, which in turn were also overwhelming. I started a Google Doc and dumped a ton of stuff in there and tried to get it organized. I think I've finally turned that doc into something useful for you. I know I still haven't answered all the questions, but I'm hoping you'll find something that helps you through this crazy time. In this episode, I'm going to take my best shot at sharing clear, carefully curated information on distance learning. We'll be doing this in four parts. In part one, we'll address your head and your heart the very real, very valid emotional and psychological factors that may be preventing you from doing a decent job with online learning. In part two, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of distance learning, options for content delivery, different ways students can demonstrate learning, and some of the tech that can make it all work for you. In part three, I'll share some general tips and advice I've gathered from teachers in the field. And in part four, we'll talk about troubleshooting solving some, actually two, (laughs) of the more specific problems that come up often when we talk about online learning. Um, I've got two disclaimers before we get started. One, as I said earlier, this post was written in the spring of 2020. So a lot of the information here is discussed through the lens of the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, I have attempted to broaden the lens beyond our current situation to take other distance learning situations into account But if you're reading this many, many years in the future um, or listening to this, um, just keep that in mind that we were in a situation at the time when this came out. But a lot of it is probably still applicable. The second disclaimer is that I am recommending quite a few tech tools in this episode. Before you proceed with any of them, please check with your district to make sure that the tools comply with your district's specific use policies for age, privacy, so on. Before we get started, I'd like to thank ListenWise for sponsoring this episode. An award-winning online listening curriculum, ListenWise brings NPR podcast lessons into your classroom for grades 2 through 12. Teach listening skills while building content knowledge using engaging and relevant nonfiction podcasts. It's great to address the listening and speaking standards on your ELA state assessments, like the Smarter Balance Test. With ListenWise Premium, you get built-in literacy supports, automatically scored listening comprehension quizzes, and interactive transcripts so students can read along as they listen. Research shows that better listeners are better learners. Sign up for a 30-day free trial at listenwise.com slash pedagogy. Support for this episode also comes from World 101. Do your students actually understand what a trade deficit is? Do they understand the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker? If you answered no to any of these questions, check out World 101 from the Council on Foreign Relations. World 101 is a growing library of free multimedia resources that explains the fundamentals of international relations and foreign policy through engaging, interactive storytelling. And did I mention it's free? World 101 will help your students become better informed, invest in their futures, and make a difference. Get them started today at world101.cfr.org. That's world101.cfr.org. Okay, let's get started. Part one is start with your head and your heart. None of the practical stuff about distance learning is gonna do any of us much good if we're in a distracted, panicked headspace and haven't tended to the ways our current situation has impacted our emotions. So I have a couple of thoughts on ways to sort of get your head in the right place in order to proceed with anything that's practical. The first is get perspective. There will likely be times when the people in charge of you start to expect too much, or you expect too much of yourself. If you're in a situation like the one we happen to be in right now, in the spring of 2020, you may need to regularly step back from what's right in front of you and remember that we're dealing with life and death circumstances right now. None of this is normal and there really is no precedent to follow. Most people are doing the best they can on any given day and that means things will not go smoothly. And by people, I mean everyone, students, parents, your colleagues, your administration, your family members, and you. You (laughs) will not always do things the right way, and we need to give ourselves grace for that. If you need something to help you regain perspective and cut yourself some slack, I am linking to um, an editorial written by someone named Carolyn Todd for Self Magazine. It is called, Is Anyone Else Just Barely Functioning Right Now? And it really resonated with me, so I thought it would help you too. And for all of the things that I recommend in this episode, you can find links to them by going to cultofpedagogy.com, clicking on podcast, and then going to episode 142. Now, if you personally have a cool level head at the moment, but someone else is pressuring you to do more, keep in mind that that person is also feeling his or her own unique pressure to perform and they're passing that stress on to you. This may be an opportunity to validate their feelings. And if you listen to episode 85, that entire episode is all about validation. Or it may be time to push back on expectations that are simply unreasonable. Episode 19, 119 is where I talk with Angela Watson about some of the ways that schools tend to expect way too much from teachers and how we can start to push back on those expectations. Another way to deal with your head and your heart is to get physical. When things start to feel like too much, start moving. Decades of research has pointed to the link between physical activity and brain function, but most of us don't need research to know that some of our best ideas come to us when we change things up and go for a walk, a run, or a bike ride. This is especially important during times when we are more likely to be cooped up in our homes, such as, say, a quarantine imposed by a global pandemic. So when you start to feel stuck, or overwhelmed or upset and you're sort of out of ideas consider doing something physical even if it's just for a few minutes and especially if you can do it out in fresh air and you will at the very least find that you have calmed yourself down at least a little bit. The third tip that I have for sort of getting your head and your heart straight is to get with other people. which is tricky because we're not supposed to be around other people but here's what I mean. <laughs> One of the things that has really overwhelmed me in the process of putting this post together is knowing that everyone's situation is a little different and not having the tools to address each situation. One way to alleviate situations like this is to get in touch with others who are more familiar with your specific needs. Apart from collaborating with your colleagues, which is probably what I would recommend you do first, a great way to share ideas is to find online groups. Now, I'm recommending two of these um, that are on Facebook. If you're not on Facebook, I strongly suggest you just set up an account only for the purpose of collaborating with others, and you don't have to use it for anything else. But some of these Facebook groups are really, really good for sharing ideas. So the two of them are, one of them is called Educator Temporary School Closure for Online Learning. It's open only to educators, and it was specifically created To support educators who are planning distance or online learning due to school closures for COVID 19. So, this is specifically for this current situation. But my guess is that once this current crisis passes, people will uh, want to maintain all of those connections that they've made through the group. And so, it may end up changing its name in the future, but my guess is that the group itself won't shut down. It will, you know, maybe morph into something with a different name that has to do with distance learning. Um, and I can't really give you the link here because it's kind of long, but you'd want to come over to Cult of Pedagogy and find that. Again, it's episode 142. Uh, the other one is called Dealing with Educational Educational Inequities in Distance Online Learning. This one has a more specific purpose. It was created, and I'm quoting from their mission statement, in response to the growing list of resources and practices during the COVID-19 shutdown that further increase the educational divide as it relates to accessibility, race, socioeconomic status, gender, and other marginalized communities. We want to demonstrate real solutions in distance online learning that can provide solutions for all learners. So one of the things that this particular crisis has really underscored is the fact that Not all of our students were getting an equal education anyway uh, under the regular conditions. And this has really just made some of those gaps even wider. So this particular group is focusing on equity. So that would be something that would pertain to a lot of your situations and a lot of your student situations. So I've got links to both of those. And there are probably lots and lots of other groups that are set up for special educators, for example, or for... Um, people who teach English learners, for example, where those groups were already established and now they will, they will also be talking about uh, distance learning. Okay, part two. This is the nuts and bolts of online learning. Online learning has so many components to it and each one could honestly get its own whole blog blog post or podcast episode. So, since I can't go too in-depth all at once, I'm just going to do an overview of all the pieces and link out to resources that can help you learn, learn more about each one. So the first piece is the piece about connecting and communicating with your students. It is essential that you have clear, consistent, accessible channels for communicating with your students. There are different pathways for communication that'll need to be established. And I thought about this for a while before I sort of categorized these. So the first two pathways are essential, they're must-haves, and they're asynchronous, meaning participants can access the conversation whenever it's convenient. They don't have to be there at the same time. So these first two that are essential, they must-haves, are the outgoing communication, and the incoming communication. So the outgoing communication pathway on this one is where you give instructions, post announcements, and generally inform your students about what's going on and what's expected of them. Some teachers are creating daily or weekly videos for this purpose. Uh, My own children have expressed a preference for the videos. They say that they understand the teachers that are doing that a little bit better than they do with the stuff that's just written, for what it's worth. Um, other teachers are just writing out instructions in places like Google Google Docs. Other teachers are doubling up. They're having some short videos paired with some written instructions so that students get the information through different modes. I think probably the most important consideration with that outgoing communication is that you pick something and keep it consistent. Just pick one place to deliver and store outgoing messages and stick with that so that students know where to look. Nothing gets lost in the mix, and no one gets overwhelmed with information overload. Now, there's going to be some trial and error at the beginning, but the quicker you, and particularly if possible, you and your colleagues can sort of standardize how you deliver that outgoing information, the easier it's going to be for your kids to keep up with that. The other must-have pathway is the incoming communication This is the pathway for students and parents to reach out to you with questions, feedback, and updates on their ability to complete required work. So this can be email, this can be um, texting or something like Remind. But again, I would say try to pick one thing. uh, And if possible, if, if most or all of your students are able to access that, then make that your pathway for incoming communication. The third pathway which I'm calling a nice-to-have and not a must-have, is the two-way or synchronous communication. These are the pathways where you and your students can communicate back and forth in a more open dialogue. This would be where you broadcast yourself live and students attend as participants in one-on-one, small-group, or whole-class sessions. The most common way that teachers are creating this pathway is through video conferencing. Um, Many teachers are using tools like Zoom, Google Hangouts Meet, um, or Microsoft Teams, and there are other tools, but those three are fairly popular. These can be great for community building and giving students a sense of connectedness with you and with each other, and that connectedness is really important. But it is also important to note that these platforms also have their pitfalls. One of which is that they may directly violate your school's privacy policies (laughs) in terms of having kids on video, uh, whether or not uh, the tools are sort of gathering any kind of data about them, having their images online. There's lots of potential complications. So be sure to check with the people in your district who are in charge of compliance with those policies to make sure that you're actually okay. And I've also linked to an article from EdSearch that really does a good job of explaining the potential problems with video conferencing. There's apparently um, where, a thing now where people can hack into your conference and put inappropriate material on there um, and a couple of other issues, you know, student behavior and that sort of thing. So that's a really good article to take a look at before you take the plunge into video conferencing or maybe to correct some of the issues that you've already had. Um, I'm also including an infographic that was created by a student tech support team. This is the Selena High School SWAT team in Selena, Texas, uh, and their advisor, advisor Tisha Poncio. Um, and it just offers some tips for students for participating in video conferences. It's a beautiful infographic and it's got really good tips, so you can grab that and use it with your students too. Okay, so if you have decided though, that video conferencing is not the route you want to go, and there are some schools that have said, no, we're not messing with video conferencing right now, you can still set up other types of discussions so that you can get students interacting. You're you're not stuck um, for, for, for any kind of discussions if you don't do video conferencing. So here are a couple of options. One is to just do straight-up discussion boards, and these are things that a lot of us have participated in in graduate school and and college and so on. Um, Lots of platforms like Google Classroom, Blackboard, Edmodo, Microsoft Teams, they all have some sort of an option to set up text-based discussions on individual topics, and these can be really, really great for online learning. Um, You could make these optional, um, maybe make them open places for students to ask questions about their work, or you could make participation a required part of students' grades. There's a a lot of different options with these um, kind of ongoing discussion boards. They can also have time limits set up for them that can be an assignment to actually go in and participate uh, in a discussion by a certain date or time. Another option is something called a back channel discussion. Um, This would feel more dynamic and more live, kind of like a video conference, but um, it wouldn't require video. So back channel is something that can have it can happen at the same time as something else. If you remember, there used to be a tool called Today's Meet that a lot of us used to use. It was sort of just like this open chat room that you could set up, and people attending a conference or maybe watching a film together or something. You could participate in this little chat room with the other people in the room. And it would just be a sort of running thread of text that would pop up on the screen. Um, that Today's Meet actually ended a couple of years ago, it just sort of shut its doors. But there's a new tool now called YoTeach, which is very, very similar to Today's Meet. And it even has some other cool features, like you can throw in a drawing, you can put pictures into it. So that would be a way to, you could create a YoTeach room Um, for your class and and maybe just make it something that you hold just at a specific time or something like that. Um, Another option especially if your students are 13 years or older is to use Voxer which is a a smartphone app and actually allows a voice conversation to go on. It's um, sort of like a running set of sort of voicemails that are all in a thread Uh, and it's a really really great tool for having a discussion with people because it uses voice so that would be another one. It's called Voxer. So just to review, this is the, the first piece of online learning that you sort of have to get figured out is how, what are the pathways for communication? How are you going to send out information? How are students and parents going to reach you? And if you desire, how are you going to have sort of open discussions, if any at all? And I would recommend that you experiment with those a little bit just because it's In distance learning, students are sort of starved for interaction with each other, and these types of discussions give them some interaction, but I still don't think that they're absolutely necessary um, in an online learning situation. So that is the first piece of the nuts and bolts. The second piece is keeping everything organized. So ideally, you and your colleagues will have chosen a single platform for storing and delivering assignments, collecting student work, posting announcements, and so on. Many schools are already set up on a learning management system like Google Classroom, Canvas, Blackboard, or Edmodo. If you don't already have something in place and you don't have time to learn a new platform, it is probably not a good idea to jump into anything new but creating a central hub of some kind should be a priority what parents and students are saying most often to me when I talk to them is that it is incredibly stressful to have to keep up with multiple platforms and multiple streams of information with some pieces coming to them through email others coming through remind others through an LMS and so on It's making them pretty crazy. And with more than one child at home, more than one teacher per child, things can get out of hand very fast. So ideally, if you can choose one platform for keeping everything organized, that would be the best way of doing that. Here's the thing I want to make sure I clarify, though. As an individual teacher, it is perfectly fine for you to use lots of different tools as part of your instruction. You might assign students to look at a set of Quizlet flashcards, take them into a Kahoot to play, give them some Edpuzzle lessons, give them newsella articles, but for actually organizing all of that, do that in one place in terms of communicating to them what the assignments are. Put that information in as streamlined a place as possible. So if you don't really have anything yet, or if you feel like your current system is kind of messy, um, I will share with you one really simple approach that has been taken by some schools is to maintain one single document, usually it's a Google Doc, for the entire school. Really simple, in that document, they just list the name of all of the teachers, and every teacher's name is then hyperlinked over to their whether it's their website or their uh, teacher page or ideally in most situations to their own either Google Doc or their own um, Google folder maybe that has a separate folder for each day and in that folder will have all of the information that students need. But this way all students and all parents start in the exact same place (laughs) they start in that one google doc where they find their teacher's name click over to it and they should expect to find current information from that teacher about what they need to do Uh, it's very plain it's not very designy but it is a really nice clean way of keeping everybody's information in one spot and it's really it was just a simple hyperdoc it's a central hub uh, where they can start every single time and click over to where they need So even if you don't use this specific model of a Google Doc, setting up something like it will really make your whole school run much more smoothly. As an individual teacher, you could then replicate this exact same type of hub for your own classes. You could create either a central folder or a file where students can find weekly or daily assignments and then click over to to the information that they need. So I've got a picture of that doc Um, in the post that you can take a look and just see how simple it is. So for the nuts and bolts, we've looked at communication pathways, um, platforms for sort of keeping everything organized. And then the next one, which I'm going to actually go through very quickly, is lesson design. And the reason it's quick is because entire degree programs have been created (laughs) to show teachers how to design lessons for online learning. So I am not going to be able to delve into this enough here because there's a lot to it. So what I did was I just found two articles, two resources that you might find helpful um, in sort of tweaking your lessons or thinking about how you want to actually plan out your lessons without having to get another master's degree. So one of them is an article by Katlyn Tucker, who I think has really become a superstar in all of this because she has been working with the idea of blended learning now for several years and has really created some great models for how to combine face-to-face learning with flipped or blended or online digital-based learning. And so I think a lot of the systems and structures that she's set up for her classroom translate really beautifully to distance learning also. So I would recommend sort of perusing her whole website. But the one that I am linking to is just called Tips for Designing an Online Learning Experience Using the 5E Instructional Model. So she's taken an existing lesson design model and sort of um, tweaked it to, to see what it looks like for online learning. And it's a great post because it's got five separate videos where she really walks you through how she plans lessons. So if you feel like you're sort of flailing and you just want something to use as a structure, that would be a great place to, to sort of just get centered and get started uh, looking through through those, those models. The other one is a little bit broader. It's from eLearn Magazine, and it's called Engaging Learners in Online Environments, Utilizing Universal Design for Learning Principles. And it just sort of talks about how it's more challenging to Uh, to do online learning because you have to work a little bit harder to get students engaged Um, so they've taken sort of the principles of universal design which is basically the idea of designing your lessons so that everyone can access them regardless of their of any abilities or um, special needs or uh, sort of like learning preferences so that's a good one, too. And one of the things they talk about quite a bit in that article is this idea of giving students choice, um, choices in how they take information in, and choices in how they demonstrate learning. And so, with that in mind, the next two sections here of the nuts and bolts um, are options for delivering content and options for um, students to demonstrate learning. In other words, <laughs> One of the main things that you do, you're basically doing two things when you're setting up online learning experiences or any learning experiences. You've got the output, which is here's the stuff you need to learn. Here's the material. Here's the knowledge, the skills that I'm trying to teach you. And you've got to figure out some way of pushing that information out so that the students can digest it. And then you have got the sort of assessment part of sort of like how are students going to show you that they learned it? So I'm going to be giving you lots of different options for both of those uh, pieces of the learning experience. Now, I realize I'm leaving off a big part, which has to do more with them sort of like discussing and digesting and, and processing it. Um, but again, I <laughs> there's just too much to do. So I think this is at least a good start. Okay. So here are some options for delivering content. You've got to get your content out to your students. The options that I'm going to be talking about are readings, videos, static slide presentations, audio, and interactive learning experiences. So five different things that you can create for students to digest the information. Within the category of readings there are actually a bunch of different options. You could start with something as simple as a Google Doc or a Microsoft Word file. Um, You know, and as long as you manage the security settings so that they can't be edited, these are perfectly fine to send to students as reading materials. A sort of upgrade from that is a regular PDF which, you know, you can turn a Google Doc into a PDF pretty easily. And the one advantage of PDFs is that you don't really have to worry about them being altered by the student because they, a PDF really can't be changed. It's harder to change it anyway. And also things like fonts and other design elements will be preserved no matter what device a student is using. You probably had the experience of opening up a Microsoft Word file, for example, and having it look all jacked up because you don't have the right fonts or something like that. With a PDF, all of that stuff stays exactly as it's supposed to. So a Google Doc, a Microsoft Word file, or a PDF, those are all perfectly fine ways of giving students reading materials. A step up from that would be to use... um, a PDF with an annotation tools, and I'm going to be linking you to a couple that allow students to actually annotate the PDFs uh, or the files, which would make a really good close reading assignment. One of them is called Kami, K-A-M-I, and that is designed for, you know, allowing students to put their own annotations onto PDFs. Another one is called Edgy, it's E-D-J-I, and that is a collaborative annotation tool and it's pretty new and it's designed to have groups of students read a pdf sort of together and and comment on it as they go along and you as the teacher can sort of see everyone's comments and annotations as you go so that is worth experimenting with if you um, you just want to try something new or if you're course content might really lend itself to something like that. It's a, it's an interesting sort of twist on the idea of annotation and collaboration. Another option for giving students reading is to send them to a website of any kind. And there's lots and lots of free content online that would make excellent reading material for class assignments. You could, of course, just use any old regular, like, article from an online newspaper. And then there are sites like Common Lit, uh, Newzella, And Actively Learn, which just house libraries full of really, really good, high-quality reading material for lots of grade levels. And in most cases, you can uh, find it by standard. On Newzella, you can even change the reading level. So there's a lot of good reading material already out there that you um, can just assign to students. Another site is Museum Ed, which is more for sort of history and social studies teachers. It has fantastic primary sources, um, old newspaper articles, um, old photographs. It's, a, it's just another great resource for sending students to a website to do some reading. Now, with any, of, any website at all, there is another level here where you can do websites and add your own customized layers to it. A tool called Insert Learning allows you to layer on your own instructional content onto any website. So you can insert a note in the middle of a website, you can insert a discussion question, a quiz, you can embed videos. So it's a way of turning a website into more of a lesson. So that tool is called Insert Learning. So all of this is just different options that you would have for just assigning readings to students. So another option is videos. A video is a very popular way to deliver content online because it has the potential to restore the voice and visuals that are lost when we move away from face-to-face instruction. Once you have a good video, you can share it directly with a link, or you can use a tool like Edpuzzle or PlayPosit to build a complete lesson around that video. And if you've never checked out those tools, I've got links to them. It allows you to sort of build you know, a quiz and other activities around an existing video. So, you have two options for sourcing your video content. You can either use videos that were created by someone else, or you can create them yourself. So, we'll start by talking about the videos created by someone else. Obviously, the internet is absolutely loaded with videos, and using them means you don't have to make them yourself. What's challenging is finding videos that are appropriate for student viewing, and that accurately represent the content you want to deliver in a way that is succinct and maybe even entertaining. Finding videos that meet these criteria can be really time-consuming if you don't know where to look. To save time, it helps to go to sources that have already proven themselves as creators of high-quality educational videos. Uh, One great place to look is Khan Academy. They offer a massive library of videos on math, science, arts, and humanities, including history and government. So that's a great place to start. Another pathway is to go to uh, YouTube channels that are created by organizations that already have a strong reputation for good content, like National Geographic, the History Channel, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, so on and so forth. And as with anything else, your colleagues are going to be one of your best sources for finding good stuff. So ask around at school or find a group on Twitter or Facebook that can recommend something to you. So if you do happen to find some good stuff that was created by someone else, that's a great start. Or you can use videos that you create yourself. The good thing about creating your own videos is that you have total control over the content. Probably the easiest way to create instructional videos is with screencasting software, which simply records whatever is on your screen while you narrate into a microphone. So one way this could look, and this is a very common, you know, popular way of doing this, is to just create a like a PowerPoint based lecture or a Google Slides lecture, and then just deliver that lecture on your screen, put it in presentation mode, and talk into a microphone, and use screencasting software to record it, and then you have a video based lecture. Uh, if you would like to try this if you never have before, Uh, here are two affordable, popular options for screencasting. One of them is called Screencastify, and this is a recorder that is built right into Google Chrome, which makes it an incredibly convenient tool for creating an on-the-spot screencast. As of right now, the editing tools are still kind of rudimentary, which means you're not likely to end up with a really polished video at the end but for many purposes this tool gets the job done quickly and easily and um, on my post I have linked to a video that shows you how to use it. The other option is called Screencast-O-Matic this has been around for a long time, it's very popular Uh, it's a recorder that you actually download onto your computer which is slightly less convenient than one that's built into a browser, but the editing features uh, with the paid plan might make it worth it for you because you're able to get sort of a tighter, more well-edited video. So for that one also, for Screencast-O-Matic, I have linked to a, a tutorial that show you that shows you how it works. So that's videos. So we've got readings you can give students, you can give them videos. Another option is to give them a static slide presentation So this is sort of like, you know, I just described how you could create like a PowerPoint or Google Slides lecture and then just record it on Screencast. Another option would be to put everything that you want to say sort of in the lecture onto the slides, not in the presenter notes, but actually on the slides, and then just send students the slide presentation a lot, of, a lot of teachers will just give their students their PowerPoint, and they'll just look at the notes, and they'll sort of scan through the PowerPoint, you know, as is, which I think is okay, but you could create sort of a better, nicer, more pleasant learning experience by um, setting up the slide presentation as its own sort of learning experience, which would basically mean sort of splitting up the slides more so that you don't have so much text on any one slide And then you can send it to students as a link so that when they open it, it just opens as the presentation. It opens in full screen mode and they can click through and it's not them just sort of looking at your editing screen. So I give you a link in my post that sort of shows how to do it. And it's just a nice alternative to um, a regular reading, but it's also a little easier to put together than doing um, a video. And it would also gobble up a lot less bandwidth on the internet. Uh, much, much easier for students to click through. They don't need to use quite so much bandwidth in their um, on their computers at home. So a static slide presentation is another option. A fourth option is just audio. Content can be delivered through just straight-up audio, which can also be a nice change of pace for students who are used to just text or only videos. Um, and because also audio files are much smaller than video files, they're a lot less likely to strain home internet capabilities. So a couple of options for, for using audio content. Um, there's a site called ListenWise, which is actually sponsoring this episode. Um, and they house a fantastic library of really nicely curated standards-aligned podcasts on a lot of different topics. Um, you can also find a lot of other podcasts uh, that are on all kinds of different topics in this post I'm linking to another post that I wrote years ago that kind of categorizes a bunch of different podcasts that are made for student audiences so you can go and take a look at those too Um, and you can also record your own audio you can record audio instructions reflections lectures Um, doing it can be really simple and quick and probably a lot less intimidating than doing video Any smartphone will have a voice recording app that's either built in or that you can download that will then give you files that you can upload to like Google Drive or something like that. There's also a web-based tool called Online Voice Recorder, which you can just, you just go in there, you click a button, you record your voice, and then you can download a file that you can then use, you know, in a lot of different places. Those can often just be uploaded right into whatever platform you're using and, Students can listen to those. That could also be an alternative or a way of making your stuff more accessible to uh, students with special needs. You could have written instructions and then have an audio version that you just read to them. And in a lot of cases, students can just play them right on that platform. So the different options for delivering content that we've looked at so far are readings, videos, um static slide presentations, audio, and then the last one is interactive learning experiences. And this is kind of a newer thing, but if you're sort of craving something different this is an option. Some tools have come along in recent years that allow you to create these interactive online learning modules where students click through various instructional components. Some of them offer sort of little games that you can create or they can take interactive quizzes and so on. In a lot of cases, it's not really that the learning itself is more challenging or in depth. It's just maybe a more fun way of delivering that same instruction. And in some cases, the activities themselves may not justify the time that it would take you to put them together. But if you again, if you want something different, maybe a little more fun than the standard fare, these are worth checking out. Uh, some of the websites I've listed—they're called Go Conquer deck toys book widgets and wiser and then the one that I sort of like the most that seems to have the coolest design is called genially that's g-e-n-i-a-l-l-y and over on the post I've actually put a video that shows how that works so that's another option for delivering content Okay, so now let's look at options for students to demonstrate their learning. Just as there are many different ways to get the content into students' heads, you can also offer choices for how students demonstrate their learning back to you. Probably the quickest, most traditional way to measure whether students learn the material is to give them some kind of test or quiz, but that may not be the best way to get students to experience the content in a deep way you also have options of doing sort of like essays and that type of thing and those are those are pretty standard and and keep using those if they're working for you but sticking with some of these more traditional methods really only favors students that work well in those modes and it doesn't really allow other students to shine in areas they might be stronger in it's also maybe not that much fun so if you're sort of looking for ideas for some fresh ideas for end products I've got some for you. Now I got a lot of these by asking on Twitter and I have linked to that question on Twitter so that you can actually read all of the suggestions that people had. Um, What I've done though is I've got, I've put together a, a sort of a list of some of my favorites and I would just remind you that before you jump on any of these, be mindful that any of these end products still need to align with your instructional goals and that You know, you want to make sure that none of them are what we call Grecian urn assignments, which are creative looking projects that don't ultimately have much instructional value. Okay, so here are some of the ideas. Uh, The first one is a book. Students would create a children's book, a mini textbook, a handbook, a comic book, some other kind of book. And in a lot of cases, I'm going to be linking to tools where you can do these. They can also do them on paper. But there's a tool called Book Creator, which is a great tool for making like an online digital book. By the way, these are in alphabetical order. So uh, the next one is a Google Tour. Using this really cool tool called a Google Tour Builder, students can create customized tours that combine photos, text, and targeted locations on Google Earth. You kind of have to see it to understand what it looks like, but you sort of click through various pieces of text, and it sort of takes you around the map and shows you different views of different parts of the world and then the person who created it actually writes up their own text commentary so they're they're incredibly just really cool and and doing one of these they could they could be tours that explore a current event they could explore historical periods or phenomena they could do science or geography topics global research topics Students could also do a tour that sort of explores their personal histories or maybe their future plans, or they could even do a Google tour that's based around a completely fictionalized story, maybe that takes place in various locations around the world. So I feel like there's a lot of really neat things you could do with this, so I think it's worth exploring. Um, Another option for an end product would be an infographic. So, either on paper or using a tool like Pictochart, you could have students create an infographic to represent or teach about an idea or a set of data or a combination of those things. Another idea is a lesson. You could have students actually write their own lesson on a chunk of your content. Uh, to make this successful, uh, you probably should provide them with the basic structure of a lesson so that they can follow that, including things like you know lesson objectives, where is the direct instruction, where's the guided practice. Have them create some sort of an assessment to measure their success. It could be a really interesting learning opportunity um, and just a really different kind of an assignment. You can then extend that and have them teach the lesson through a screencast video or something like that. Another idea is a model. Students can create a physical model representing some aspect of your curriculum and then if you're doing this online, they could photograph it from various angles, you know, write up captions to those photos, create a video tour of the model. But, you know, just because it's a physical thing in their home and they can't bring it to you at school doesn't mean that they can't uh, sort of show it and talk you through it to, to, to demonstrate how that model is, is representing that piece of learning. Another idea is a museum or multimedia collection. You could have students curate a collection of artifacts that represent a curricular concept along with their own written captions in maybe something like a Google Slides presentation. Uh, two really good resources for gathering these artifacts, whether it's you know videos, photos, um, that type of thing, um, are the Smithsonian Learning Lab and then a website called Google Arts and Culture. And both of these are huge collections of sort of images and videos and other things, artwork and other scientific things. And you you kind of have to go and look at at them to get an idea of what I'm talking about. But they're great collections where students could pull to create their own collections that represent a certain type of learning. Another option is a podcast. You could have students use the recording tools that I already mentioned in the audio section, or they can use an app like Anchor Um, to record a podcast. And the podcast could be about anything. They could express an opinion, tell a story, teach about a content-related topic. Um, If they have a lot of material, they could even break that podcast up into multiple episodes and do a series. So there's lots and lots of um, options for a podcast, which I think some of your students would really love to have that as, as a choice. Another way of having students demonstrate learning is with a scavenger hunt. Having them participate in some sort of content-based scavenger hunt and then take photos of what they're finding uh, to actually record their findings. There is actually an app called Goose Chase that sort of structures this. You don't have to use it, but that that kind of could make it even a little bit more fun. Another option is a sketch note. You can have students create a sketch note, and that's those sort of picture. Notes where it's a lot of words and then a lot of little doodles and they're all kind of like organized around and you could have them create one of these to represent a content-related topic. They could do this on paper if they're not tech-based or there are drawing apps that they could use these, um, use to create these too. Um, and I've also linked to a video that kind of explains what a sketch note is and how to create one. Two more options, videos. Students can create their own videos as creative, informative, persuasive, or reflective pieces, sort of the same way that they would do like writing. They could do videos that are public service announcements, commercials, mini documentaries, instructional videos. They could do short feature films or animations. They could even do TED-style talks. The tools for creating these can range from like a quick response platform like Flipgrid, They could use the screencasting tools that I mentioned earlier. There are also great stop motion video tools. There's one called Stop Motion Studio, which would make such a great project. Or even just simple online tools like Adobe Spark that allow you to sort of pull together pictures and videos and add text and create a video that way. So there's lots and lots of video creation tools out there. And then finally, another option is to have them create a website. It could be a small website. Um, They can use tools like Weebly or Wix or Google Sites and actually develop a website. Um, It could document a long-term project, or it could be to teach about a particular idea. It could be a, a blog that they're keeping about a particular topic. It could be a fictional blog that they're keeping. Lots and lots of options with a website. So let me run through those really quick. Again, these ideas for end products, a book, a Google tour, an infographic, a lesson, a model, a museum or multimedia collection, a podcast, a scavenger hunt, a sketch note, a video, or a website. All right, so we are on part three now. We're, we've moved away from the nuts and bolts, and now these are just general tips and advice from teachers. And this is actually a much shorter section because I've kind of gone over a lot already. But These are just a few more tips that I've heard from teachers on Twitter about things that they've learned about effective online learning. The first one is begin again. (laughs) If distance learning has been introduced suddenly, where it's taking the place of face-to-face learning rather than being the standard from the start, treat the beginning of that shift the same way that you would treat the beginning of a school year, by establishing routines and protocols before dig digging deeply into content and giving extra energy to rekindling culture and relationships on that new platform, even if they were already established in the face-to-face setting. So even if you've already been doing online learning for a couple of weeks and maybe it hasn't been going that well and you kind of haven't really set up really good routines, there is absolutely nothing wrong with saying, okay, we're starting fresh today. We're going to just spend today like practicing a couple of things or, or whatever it is. I know it's messy, but that's that is a, a way maybe of sort of regaining a little bit of control over a situation that might feel a little bit out of control. Another tip is keep home responsibilities in mind. When schools are closed district-wide, all children are out of school and under one roof. This means older kids may be shouldering some responsibility for caring for their younger siblings, and that could impact how well they're able to keep up with deadlines, log in for synchronous events, or respond to communication in a timely manner. So letting students know up front that you get this and maintaining flexibility with deadlines can go a long way toward keeping the lines of communication open and avoiding misunderstandings. The third tip is to make social interaction a priority. When we are kept from one another for whatever reason, our need for human interaction increases. So if you're teaching a distance learning course that was set up that way to begin with, it's important to build in structures to keep students interacting with each other and with you. This principle is even more vital in situations where distance learning is coupled with large-scale social isolation. Some of the tools and systems I mentioned earlier, like video conferencing and discussion boards, can meet this need. Even your own outgoing video, audio, and written communication, even if it's not two-way, it can be used for more human connection reasons. A good general rule to keep in mind is that you don't need to use 100% of your time for instructional purposes. Allowing space for regular conversation, venting, and laughter can be incredibly important. The last tip is keep messaging to a minimum. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but it's important, so I'm repeating it. If kids and parents are receiving multiple messages from multiple teachers every day and families have multiple kids, they can become overwhelmed really quickly and things will start slipping through the cracks. So try to limit the number of platforms that you and your school are using for distributing information. Ideally, you'll have one clear channel for sending out announcements and messages, and those will be limited in number. Parents and students will have one place to look for all important information and that place will be clean, simple, easy to navigate, and updated regularly so that all users can count on the information being current. The closer you get to this ideal, the more smoothly things will go. All right, we are ready for part four, which is troubleshooting. Two specific problems tend to come up more often than any others when it comes to distance learning. Although neither one is completely solvable, here are some of the ways schools are addressing them. The first one is students who do not have home access to tech. The whole notion of distance learning becomes a problem if some of your students don't have devices or reliable internet access. So here are a couple of ways to address this problem. The first one is get more students connected. So in 2017, I did a post called When Your School is Short on Tech, and the episode is 76. In that, um, in that post, I showcased a whole bunch of different ways that schools are actually getting unconnected families online, including information on how some schools are partnering with organizations like Kageet, K-A-G-E-E-T to loan Wi-Fi hotspots out to families. Um, There are organizations that are um, doing Chromebooks. There are grant things. So this is more of a long-term solution, um, but it would be something to look into if some of your population is unconnected. Some of, the situations may, or some of the solutions may not be relevant to a distance learning situation, but in that post, you might find some resources that can be helpful in your community, even if they can't be implemented right away. Um, another option is to offer non-digital choices. So some districts are working around this problem by offering paper resources for pickup and drop-off. Um, this is how we all did distance learning in the years before the internet. I took a correspondence course in college and you just mailed stuff. Um, a lot of schools are sort of offering like a pickup at the school. So it's certainly possible to do it again this way, even though it is really inconvenient. Um, but I think if, if you sort of cooperate with people and, and share the workload, it, it can be doable at least. Another option is to use the phone, and hear me out because I'm not talking about doing the entire instruction on the phone, but if you have tried other avenues and you still can't get a hold of some families, because this is a problem for some teachers is that they can't even reach some of their families, just trying a regular phone call might be your best option. If you want to keep your number private, you can set up an account with Google Voice, which allows you to call, text, or message another phone without sharing your personal number. Also, I've linked you to some instructions on changing your phone settings to block your number. And if you're reaching out to families that don't speak your language, there is an app called Talking Points, which allows you to actually communicate with them in their language. It allows you to send messages that will be translated, and I believe they offer 20 to 30 different languages. So that's one to check out. Um, And families on the receiving end do not have to have smartphones, as long as they've got a phone that can receive a text uh, it could work with them. So that may be an option. Another option which I sort of alluded to before is to use the mail. This is not ideal, it is not cheap, but it still may be possible to mail materials back and forth. And If you've got office staff in school they might be able to help with this. Even if instruction isn't possible this way, consider the impact it would make if you took 10 minutes to mail a handwritten letter to an otherwise unconnected student just to let them know you're thinking about them. And I know that is a concern for some teachers. They've sort of given up on the idea of trying to do regular instruction with some kids that are just very difficult to reach for the moment, but they want them to know that they're still thinking about them and that they still care about them. And and sending something through the mail, it may get to them. And finally, as a last resort, and I know (laughs) this is not possible in some cases, but There are some teachers that are doing home visits, which is not out of the question. If you're deeply concerned about reaching students who can't be reached in any other way, it may be possible to just drive to their neighborhoods and, you know, maintaining all precautionary measures and social distancing, checking in with them. You may only need to make that one visit just to at least establish some sort of a phone connection or a neighbor or some other way that you can actually maintain from that point on. So I know that there are some teachers who are really sort of torn up about not being able to reach certain students. So um, remember that digital options are not our only options. Uh, It may be a matter of doing things that are just kind of unconventional nowadays, but maybe at one point in time they weren't. So those are some suggestions for trying to reach students who don't have technology at home. The other concern, and I really don't have a ton of answers for this one, but this is for meeting special education, RTI, and language learning needs. So many of our students have these individual needs, and we have figured out how to meet them in a school setting, but when a school moves to a distance learning model, teachers and parents are at a loss for how to continue working with these students. So... Since this one is really far out of my wheelhouse, what I did was I reached out on Twitter asking teachers, you know, how they're handling this particular need. I have linked over to that tweet and there are hundreds of replies. Probably your best bet is to go over there and read those replies because you'll probably find one or two things that work in your situation. The other benefit to that is that. You will then find other people who are doing some of the same things that you're doing and then you can connect with them and and process more of these questions and ideas with them. Apart from that, I've just got two, two other resources to share. One is the Talking Points app that I just talked about, which allows you to reach out to parents who speak a different language. And then I would take a look at Microsoft. Microsoft has a growing suite of tools that are made specifically to make online learning more accessible for all learners and they they continue to work on these and improve them and improve them and improve them. So I've linked over to uh, a post where I kind of go through all of those different things, um, you know, reading accessibility tools and voice to text and text to speech, and I'm probably saying them all wrong, but they they really are, I think, leading right now in the area of accessibility. So if if you are able to learn and then teach your students even one or two of these tools to make some of the materials more accessible to them, that could really help long-term in distance learning. Okay, so I have to share that as I neared completion on this episode, and this was just a few hours ago, I opened up my inbox and I found five other resources that had been sent to me for possible inclusion in this piece. Looking through them made me realize that I had missed gobs and gobs of information here. I felt completely deflated and overwhelmed all over again. But then, as I have often had to do in the past couple of weeks, I took a deep breath. I closed up all the things that were distracting and upsetting me, and I said to myself, today you have done enough. So I hope something in here has helped you in some way, and if not, tomorrow is another day I will be back. For links to all the resources mentioned in this episode, visit cultofpedagogy.com, click podcast, and choose episode 142. To get a weekly email from me about my newest blog posts, podcast episodes, and products, sign up for my mailing list at cultofpedagogy.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening. Wash your hands. Be smart. Be safe. And try to find a way every day to be grateful for everything that makes life worth living.